This is Queen Victoria. Welcome to Murder Lab, the podcast where I don't just discuss one serial killer, I discuss several serial killers and what they have in common. I will be continuing the series of families that murder together. This is part like seven. I don't know. There's been a whole bunch. I haven't counted. But it's exciting because today we are covering sisters that killed together and then brothers that killed together. So instead of sibling rivalry, they decided to band together and bond over blood. (laughs) I will begin with Delfina and Maria de Jesus Gonzalez. They had over 80 victims. In some cases, it said 91 or more. In one case, it said 90 to 110, maybe more. So over 80 is pretty sufficient, I guess, because that's still a lot. So I think, you know, whether they killed 80 or 110, that's uh, prolific enough. This all happened in Mexico in from around the 1950s to 1964. Delfina was born in 1912. It is unknown when Maria was born. Their father was Isidro Torres, who was abusive and was a member of the rural police. Apparently, if he didn't like what the girls were doing, like if they were wearing makeup or they did anything, he would actually lock them in jail overnight or for however long. And so that's fun. (laughs) At one point, he shot and killed a man and got in trouble. So they moved and the girls were industrious and didn't want to live a poor life. So they opened up a saloon. Then they realized, well, you know... You can make some money out of sex work. So they bribe some local officials and they start a string of brothels. They had several brothels. They had a brothel at Rancho El Angel or it's okay. So when it's hard, I think I've mentioned this before. When I know it's supposed to be pronounced a certain way, it's just hard not to say it because I feel like stupid, (laughs) you know, (laughs) like that's how it's pronounced. But then I also understand that we also pronounce things in English ways. You know, so it's Rancho El Angel. The way that they got their sex workers is they would abduct young teenagers, force them into drug dependency, and they'd go through unspeakable humiliation and deprivation. They also had recruiters for the girls. So some of the girls were recruited and told that they were going to be maids and waitresses, but then they were made to be sex workers instead. Or Delfina's lover, Herman Gildo Zuniga, and his, quote, army of henchmen... Or as I like to call them, the Gonzalez goons. Because, you know, every good villain needs their goon. Apparently Zuniga was an army captain, also known as the Black Eagle. Some of their brothels were located in San Francisco del Rincon, in Guanajuato, or San Francisco del Rincon, Guanajuato. They also opened brothels in, in Parisima del Rincon and Leon in Guanajuato. Also known in English as Parisima del Rincon. They had ones in El Salto, in San Juan de los Lagos, Jalisco, and San Juan del Rio, Querétaro State, near Mexico City. Or, in English, El Salto, and San Juan de los Lagos, Jalisco, and one in San Juan del Rio, Querétaro State near Mexico City. There was actually two other sisters that were involved with the brothels. So there were four sisters total. Delfina, Maria, and Carmen. 
operated the Jalisco and Guanajuato brothels, Maria Luisa ran one near the Mexico border. So there's Delfina, Maria, Carmen, and Mary Luisa. They all helped run the brothels. Now, getting back to the girls that were recruited, they would be 12 to 15 years old. Once they hit the age of 25, they were considered old and taken away to a ranch where they were locked away for days with no water or food. If they got sick, if they lost their looks, if they were troublesome, they were killed. If a girl was sick, she was starved, or other girls were forced to beat her to death with things like heavy logs or sticks. They were then buried in a mass grave or burnt until ash. They were drugged, beaten, tortured. Then this is just any of them, whether they're healthy or not. And this was part of what which forced them to stay in the sex work. If they happened to find a virgin, they were held for wealthy clients. Others would be raped, showered in ice water, and intimidated to keep them in line. All the girls would have to buy clothing and makeup from the sisters. One source, and one source only, so I'm not sure how accurate it is, said that Salvador Estrada Bocanegra, the executioner, would pin them up to a wall with a nail, bury them alive, throw them off a roof, etc., to get rid of them. The executioner. They bought a bar in Lagos, and through the previous owner, they got a nickname, Las Pocianchis, which they despised. Now, I looked this up to try to find out what that meant, and one thing said it's not translatable. I found another thing that tried to break it down. They said, so basically, the first part of the word, P-O-Q-U-I, is poca, which means little. A-N is madre, which means mother. And C-H-I is chingada, fregada, or trabajada, which means basically like work or scrub. So it means like little mom that scrubs or works. So little working mama, I'm guessing is, or little scrubbing mama. So the only reason, the only way that I could think that that might be offensive is if you're calling her... If you're calling them, because it's las, so it's plural, and it ends with an S, it would be little working mothers. And maybe since they were known to be sex workers, it was kind of derisive, like she's a working girl. It could be implying that since they, they bought a bar, so that's a legit business. So maybe it was meant to be derisive against a woman owning a bar. So it was spoken as a sexist, you know, oh, look at that woman, that working woman. It could be both. I don't know. Um, Like I said, I didn't find anything definitive, but just using some logic, I guess, and piecing it together, that's, that's the way that I figure they didn't like it. But it could be something really filthy, and someone who knows what it means is laughing really fucking hard right now. So if you know that it means something specific, please let me know. Because I don't want to keep saying it if it's filthy and I'm offending someone or a group of people. <laughs> Delfina had a son named Ramon Torres. And in 1963, the cops shot him in an altercation. Obviously, she got upset. So she ordered them to be killed. Her lover Zuniga happened to be a hitman, so he killed the officers. Not only did she lose a son, but Ramon El Tepo Torres was also muscle for her organization. So she lost her son, and she lost a bouncer, and that is obviously devastating as a mother and a business owner. How were they caught? Well, there are two versions. One is Josefina Gutierrez was suspected of kidnapping slash recruiting girls. She got arrested, and she told of the of one of the brothels and the cops went and yada yada. Or there's a couple sources that said that there was a sex worker, Catalina Ortega, escaped in January 1964 and ran to the cops. She said she had been kidnapped, beaten, tortured, and 
forced to be a sex worker and that many girls were still there and many girls were murdered. Now, she was lucky because she happened to go to cops that were not on the payroll. So they got a search warrant and raided the ranch. When they reached the ranch, they found that the Gonzalez sisters had fled and they found, I quote, a pathetic dormitory of young girls broken by ill use and narcotics in the care of a handful of thugs. They found the bodies of 11 men, 80 women, and several fetuses. So that total was over 91. The villagers demanded that the sisters be lynched, and when they were found, they were initially taken to the San Francisco del Rincon jail, but since everyone wanted them dead, they were moved to another jail. A week later, the sister Maria Luisa turned herself in because she was afraid that she would be lynched. They found out that... Not only were they killing their sex workers, they were also killing migratory workers for their money or um, clients would be murdered and their money taken. If someone asked what happened to them, they would often say, quote, the food didn't agree with them. Their brothels were dubbed the Wardello from hell. Insert your from dusk till dawn joke here. They were tried and each sister got 40 years. During the trial, it was exposed that they were forcing sex workers to engage in acts with animals, torturing the other girls and clients, and killing when instructed. Dozens of witnesses testified of their cruelty and that they dabbled in Satanism, which I'm not sure that that was ever really proven or if it was just something that was said to, you know, sometimes things are exaggerated to make them more interesting. They were charged with corruption of bribing authorities. Delphina died in prison from a quote-unquote accident on October 17th, 1968. The workers were doing repair work and accidentally dropped a bucket of cement on her head, killing her. If you wanted to die in a cartoonish way, um, Wile E. Coyote, I'm sure, was uh, pretty excited about that one, but that would be a pretty terrible way to die. Maria, now it's hard to, it's hard to tell what happened to her because in some things it says that she was released and other things it says that she died in prison. <laughs> Some say she was released at age 64 and then believed to have died in 1990 of old age. A couple other things said that she died alone in her jail cell on November 19, 1984. Quote, By the time her body was found, it had already been partially consumed by rats. I'm sure that, uh, that she would rather be known to have died of old age as opposed to her imprisoned carcass being eaten by rodents. Carmen died of cancer in 1958. In 2002, workers clearing land for a housing development near the Loma del Angel Ranch found a shallow pit of human remains of 20 people. They apparently died in the 50s or 60s, and they were thought to be more victims of the bordello from hell. That is pretty much all the information I was able to find, or and along with my socially distant assistant, Igor. So I didn't have any book references. I couldn't find any books written about them. There was one, but it's written in Spanish, and I took a few years of Spanish, and I remember a few words here and there, but there's no way I could read a whole book in Spanish and know what it was saying. And I could try to, like, what, babblefish it? <laughs> try to, like, type in the words and try to piece it together. But I'm afraid that I would misinterpret something and get something wrong, and um, that wouldn't be fun. It would be great if I could find an English version of it, or if someone knows Spanish and wants to read it for me <laughs> and give me the details. That could be fun. And now we're on to the Wardlaw sisters. In a couple different sources, it looked like it was it was spelled Wardlow. But in my main source and several other sources, it's Wardlaw. So the Wardlaw sisters. With everyone else in this episode, I was not able to find a book about them. So I found a book on 
these sisters. So I have way more information on these sisters than on anyone else. So this will be the biggest portion of the episode. The main reference is Three Sisters in Black by Norman Zyrold. Technically, they are not serial killers because there's only one official victim. I only found, I only had, okay, so reminder, my library of reference material is at 200 books. I have specifically 72 reference books, and most of those are encyclopedias. So out of all those, they're only mentioned like twice. And usually it's a very vague, they killed family members. I thought, well, I found this book, let me read and see if there's more information on more killings that isn't apparent in other things or maybe it's exaggerated and maybe they shouldn't be in the considered serial killers so i actually found them oh i found them in one reference material (laughs) i had one reference to them that was in inside the mind of serial killers by katherine ramsland so i don't know anyway so they have one official but there's possibly two or more that i could ascertain from everything and I guess it's always possible that they could have killed people that we're not sure about. The one official killing happened in New Jersey in 1909. Around November 27th or 29th, 1909, police were called by Virginia Wardlaw because her niece's naked body was sitting in a tub of water with her head tilted under the faucet, a note pinned to her clothes that were sitting on the floor. It was a suicide note. Her suicide note read, Last year, my little daughter died. Other near and dear kindred, too, have gone to heaven. I long to go there, too. I have been ill and weak a very long time now. Death will be a blessed relief to me in my sufferings. When you read this, I will have committed suicide. My sorrow and pain in this world are greater than I can endure. Signed, O.C.W.M. Sneed. I made her Southern because they are from the South. At this point, the cops are told that her spouse was gone and thought to be dead her baby girl had died she had been ill and her infant son was sick in a hospital the aunt virginia that had called the cops reported the death 24 hours after the death had occurred so when they looked at the body they're like well this has been here for like 24 hours why did you just call us she responded that oc had asked her to leave her alone for a while because she wasn't feeling well so she left her alone this is an important note to keep in mind Virginia was dressed all in black, complete with several black veils covering her face, and she had like a long black dress and a long black cape. Veils and a cape. So obviously, the doctor on the scene was like, this is kind of weird. He's like, so you were, you were in the house, you live with her, you're in the house, you don't check on her for 24 hours, you know she got into, she was taking a bath, you didn't hear her walk around the house, and you just, you didn't have to use the bathroom at all. So you just now found her. So the whole thing just seemed odd. So he asked the cops to further investigate. So they discovered that apparently there are three sisters, and they all wore black and black veils. So they were known as the Sisters in Black. So they have quite a mystery to unfold here. So I'm going to tell you about the family that they start to discover as they're researching. There's Virginia, Caroline, and Mary Wardlaw. They were daughters of a Methodist minister from a wealthy family. Now you'll know from previous episodes that I am actually a minister's daughter, that my father was a Methodist minister. So I always find it interesting when I happen upon Methodist ministers in the research, which I did in the Harp Brothers episode. Here's another method, which I guess that's not not like a big hard thing to find. It's not so rare that there's a Methodist minister, but it's still interesting to me. 
Their mother's name was Martha, and I wonder if they had any moments while they were fighting that was, was like the uh, Superman and Batman moment where they wind up making up and finding some common ground because their mom's name is Martha. It's the name that brings people together. Caroline was born in 1985. She married Colonel Robert Martin, and together they had Oceana Wardlaw Martin, September 1885. There was Mary Elizabeth Long Wardlaw, born in 1848. She married Fletcher Tillman Sneed. They had sons Fletcher, John, and Albert. Their sister Virginia Oceana Wardlaw, who was born in 1852 and never wed. And there is Bessie Gertrude Wardlaw, who married Richard Spindle. So right off the bat, <laughs> there's a lot of names and a lot of kids. So I was glad that I found a book because it really helped me chart it out better in my brain. Because if you just start throwing names at me, it's hard to keep track of stuff. Especially when there are a lot of common names. Like you'll notice there's Oceana Wardlaw Martin. And then there's Virginia Oceana. So you've got a lot of people named after people. And So there's Caroline, Mary, Virginia, and Bessie. We really only need to care about Virginia, Caroline, and Mary. And then little Oceana Wardlaw Martin, who is known as Osi. So Caroline's daughter, Osi. Caroline, Mary, and Virginia were all teachers. Virginia became president of a college. Well, then Caroline showed up and fucked it all up. So basically, she started making things really weird. She kept changing schedules. They, were all, they all acted a little weird, but mostly it was Caroline that just... <sighs> I don't know, like funds were weird. Like she just messed everything up to the point where the school had to close and they tore it down. That's how bad things went under Caroline's leadership. And Virginia was apparently scared of her. So Virginia just did whatever the hell she, Caroline wanted. At this point, O.C. was 16 years old and she was going to the school. So she seemed vibrant, but then she started to disappear for long periods of time. And the family would say she was sick. So she'd show up and then she'd just disappear again. So it was kind of like weird behavior and people took notice. Their great aunt Oceana Seaborn Pollock, they really like the nautical themes. Their mom Martha, good old Martha, had a sister named Oceana Seaborn Pollock who happened to be owner and director of Montgomery College. At this point, she was 93, so she put Virginia in charge. I guess Virginia didn't tell her how things went at the other school, <laughs> which is probably for the best. And things were going well until good old Caroline showed up. So Caroline shows up and things just start to go to crap. Around 1900, if you remember, Mary had sons. She had sons John and Fletcher. They got married. Not to each other. They got married to other women. And in 1906, Aunt Caroline visits John and demands for him to come and teach at Montgomery College. And he's like, no, I've got a life. I love my wife. No. So then she keeps, she comes back and she insists that he goes. So he goes with her. He leaves his wife and the wife is writing to him like, hey, you coming home? Like, what is going on? And he's not responding. So then finally, his wife is checked into a sanitarium. John seems to be depressed and he doesn't seem to be doing well. There's an incident where they were on a train and he fell off. Caroline insisted it was an accident, but the brakeman said that it looked like that John had jumped. So he felt like it was a suicide attempt. Then he was caught in an open cistern. So he's basically like in this water and someone finds him and grabs him before he can die. Uh, Virginia said that he was, quote, taking measurements. But again, some people wondered if it could have been suicide and not any kind of foul play. A week later, Virginia got help when she found him rolling around on the floor on fire. He wound up dying three hours later of first-degree burns. And again, they swore it was an accident. They said, look, his clothes caught fire when he was trying to, trying to start a fire. 
They also said a lamp exploded, so... I guess pick one. The thing is that witnesses said that there was no evidence of a, that he was trying to start a fire or of a lamp exploding. And when they got a good look at the clothes, they were soaked in kerosene. So again, they're like, you know, that was probably suicide. Or they also got paid because they had an insurance policy in them on him. So it was like $12,000 they got, which I guess is the equivalent in... 2019 of $341,000. Reading all that, there's a part of me that's just wondering if maybe Caroline tried to push him off the train, if Virginia pushed him in the cistern, and then Virginia soaked his clothes and tried to kill him. I don't know. So I guess we'll never know. Was it suicide? Was it murder? Apparently it was ruled an accident because they got paid for the insurance, so... Remember uh, Mary's son, Fletcher? Caroline had Fletcher watch some of their properties and wouldn't let his wife see him. So basically she's like, you need to go watch this property for me. And then she would tell the wife, well, he's sick, so you can't talk to him. So then finally the wife is like, fuck it, whatever. He obviously doesn't want to be with me if he's not with me, (laughs) literally. So she divorced him. Well, then in 1906... Caroline's daughter, O.C., married Fletcher. Now they're first cousins. So there you go. I don't know. They married in Louisville, Kentucky. So now this is another thing that's kind of weird is so they were apparently married secretly because at first the families were against the union. Then Then there was a second wedding that the family went to because they wanted to make sure that they were married because their baby was on the way. So they wanted to make sure the baby was legitimate, you know, like had rights and stuff legally. So they had a girl, Mary Alberta Sneed. Unfortunately, the baby died at two days old. And the family was supposed to have a policy on Fletcher. So keep that in mind. Later, it's even Fletcher says something about how they were actually married three times. So I love that everything with this family has to be convoluted and crazy, as as you'll see as we get more in depth here. Now, the sisters were constantly trying to get money. They would actually have scams that would make H.H. Holmes proud when they actually were successful. So, for example, they said they had some pianos for sale. So this guy was like, okay, I'll buy them. So he gives them $200, and then he goes to pick up the pianos, and he's not allowed to enter the building. So he keeps trying to contact the sisters, and now at this point, the only time he saw them in person was when they first he first handed them the money. And then after that, everything was through Telegram. And they were using a different name. So there were tons of telegrams back and forth. And he was threatening, like, you know what? I, need, I gave you my money. Where are the pianos? And they finally said, you know what? It turns out that someone else owns those pianos, so we can't give them to you. So then he was threatening to sue them, and they finally gave him the $200, and he shut up. They apparently did not have the smoothness that H.H. H. Holmes did. Because H.H. H. Holmes actually got away from a lot of his creditors. But I guess in some time, sometimes they were, they did the piano sale scam on a few different people. And I guess sometimes they were actually successful at um, not having to give the money back. So at this point, the things officially went to crap at the new school. And people started, there was like rioting and stuff like that. And people started to leave the schools. So at this point, instead of like the other school shutting down and being torn down, a committee of trustees were kicked them all out. And at this point, they went to New Jersey. Fletcher leaves because he's supposed to testify at a trial. This man that he had worked with apparently did some embezzling or something. 
and he had to go testify against him. Now, he worked with this man and apparently had a good relationship with this man. The family liked the man. So having to testify against him was a very stressful thing. And he said, look, I'm going to go. If I don't call you, then be worried. You know, if I, if I don't check, you know, make sure that if I stop checking in with you, be worried. Well, he stopped checking in with them. And so the sisters told O.C. that he was probably dead. O.C. lost a baby and now she's lost a husband. So she's not doing so well. And at this point, the three sisters were all dressing in black with the black veils and the long black dresses and the black capes. They all were a little different physically. One was m- m- was bigger than the others so that she was a little more obvious of who she was. But the other two, it was harder to tell. So they're wearing this black. They're living in this house. And there are virtually no lights on in the house. The blinds are always drawn. No one's allowed in. They would only go out at night. And if someone did go in the house for anything, they would see there was no furniture. They also had a habit of leaving stuff at other people's places for keeping. So they would just go in and be like, hey, can I keep some boxes here for a while? And the person would, you know, sometimes they'd be like, no. (laughs) And other times they'd let them do it. They would just put stuff there. They moved a lot because they were poor. But the weird thing is you could tell that they had come from wealth. So it wound up being called the House of Mystery. And they were known as the Sisters in Black or the Black Sisters. And naturally, everyone was very suspicious. O.C.'s second child was born in 1909, named David Pollock Sneed, and he was sickly. So the sisters took him away to a hospital. At one point, a doctor was called to see O.C. At first, he's like, well, she's not, I don't see anything really wrong with her other than she's starving. Like, she looks emaciated. Like, give this girl some light and some food. And he gave them prescriptions to give to her. Well, they call him again, and she, they haven't done anything. He had to give her, um, he had to perform surgery on her at one point because after the baby, she had some stuff wrong with her. So he did surgery. He put stitches in her. They wouldn't let him back in the house. And he kept trying, like, to the point where he broke in a window because he was so worried about this woman. And they kicked him out. He tried to get a nurse to come, and they wouldn't let him have her come. So then they offer him $1,000 to make a will for O.C. because it was obvious she was dying. And he's like, no, this is crazy. Like, what the hell? So he mentioned it to the cops. In October 1909, they were in an apartment in New Jersey that had no heat or gas. It had a cot for her to sleep on. And then, like, there was, like, a pieced-together chair and, like, a barrel that was a table. So it was all just thrown-together stuff. At that point, 1909, November, that's when Virginia calls, calls the police and has them come over because there was an accident. And the accident was apparently O.C. had drowned in the tub. Although, again, there was a suicide note left. The woman was 80 pounds. The interesting thing is that she had written a suicide note. But when they searched, there was no pen in the house. There was no paper in the house. The earlier Virginia had said that they had made up a fire to heat up some water to put in the tub. And there was no fire. There was also no towel. So if O.C. was going to take a bath, there was no towel for her to dry off with. So this is kind of weird. It was labeled the bathtub tragedy. So the autopsy showed that she had drowned. But there was a second one done. And it was shown that there was not enough water in her stomach to have drowned. 
They noticed that several insurance policies have been taken out on OC over the last few years, which actually there were seven policies that start at the age of 15. And so they were basically using those policies as security for loans. So they kept, so they're basically using these insurance policies to be getting money to be living on now. Someone came forward and said that when the women had been looking to rent a room, they turned one down because a bathtub was too small. They found Mary Sneed and the mother Martha, but they couldn't find Caroline. So now they're frantically trying to find the mother to figure out what's going on and to let her know her daughter's dead. The defense team started to do research, and they they said that while, as I stated earlier, supposedly Caroline had come and made John leave his wife, and then his wife went to a sanitarium, and then Fletcher, she made Fletcher leave his wife, and they got a divorce. The defense claimed, said that there was no proof that John and Fletcher were happily married, that they were actually not happily married, and that there's no policy on Fletcher. They said that all that stuff is so they're innocent of those things. So wipe those things out of your mind because that's not a thing. They had, since they were from a prevalent family, they did have some wealthy people. I believe like they were um, on par with the Vanderbilts, to give you an idea. A lot of their family came to their defense and said there's no way that they could have done this. But anyone who had had dealings with them like there was like this one of the towns they lived in they kept getting swindled because they kept you know they kept doing things like the piano sales and um, they wouldn't pay their bills and they acted weird so they had a bad reputation which reminds me of Amy Archer Gilligan now these women at this point are in their 60s they're older women and some people think they're great and you know when they were teaching at schools they were very intelligent women a lot of people felt that they were great women. But then again, you have the other people that saw the fraudulent side of them and the stern side of them. So like Amy Archer Gilligan, you had very mixed reviews. Some people thought they were great and thought she was a saint and other people thought that she was terrible. So it's interesting to see that dynamic again. Now the handwriting on the note, the handwriting expert deemed it inconclusive. He said that there was definitely different handwriting in the body of the note than in the signature. There was also a different pen used in the signature, but he said that he still couldn't conclusively say that it was not O.C.'s handwriting. He had two samples of O.C.'s handwriting, and the defense said that the signatures weren't reliable because it was signed in bed. So I guess the angle that she did it and the strength she used or lack of strength was not a reliable reference. When they were trying to retrace footsteps of the sisters, it was difficult because when they would travel, they would buy tickets on the train and not in the depot. So apparently the way that it worked is if you bought tickets to the depot, you would say, I want the you know five o'clock train to Clarksville. And they, you know, blah, blah. But I guess if you just said, I'm just going to buy tickets on the train, they'd let you get on the train. And then you would just tell the train driver, OK, I'm going to go there. I don't know. They were dif- that was difficult to tell where they were going at any point in time. So they were really good at covering the tracks. It was like everything they did, they purposely convoluted it. It was also de- revealed that O.C. had a brother, Hugh Martin, in 1881. He was actually four years older than her. Someone said that he had died of meningitis in 1888, but then other people said that he died from falling down the stairs, and that it seemed suspicious. The death certificate said he died on November 30th at seven years old from meningitis and exhaustion. 
So later they'll point out some of the prosecution or some of the people pointed out that, well, it's interesting that O.C. was apparently starving and emaciated. And now you have you hear of uh, her brother that had exhaustion at seven years old. I mean, the meningitis, I don't know, maybe the meningitis could have had. So I don't know that that's necessarily fishy since that's the official was meningitis and not falling down the stairs. I, I don't know. They don't seem like they're terribly successful at in general at their schemes. I mean, they're somewhat. So I don't know that she was successful enough that she could have bribed someone to put something on a certificate that is not true. When Caroline first married, their mansion burned down and they got the insurance money and it was never found out what happened. Again, that's kind of suspicious when we know that they've done some kind, some versions of fraud. Her husband had a stroke and died January 9th, 1901. She defaulted on paying for the burial. So he had to get disinterred and put in a Confederate ground paid for by war vets. She defaulted on paying for her husband's grave and he had to be dug up. Now, I don't know. To me, that seems kind of shitty. But then again, I mean, everybody has different opinions on burials and if what graveyards mean and that kind of thing. So maybe I'm being judgmental when that seems kind of like, eh. But I think if you take away any kind of judgment of it and you just say the fact that she defaulted on paying for the burial and then you see that there's a pattern of them not paying for things, then maybe it's just it's not personal with her. It's just she doesn't pay for things, <laughs> you know. Uh, he died, by the way, of hemopelia, chronic cystitis, and a coma. She did have a policy out on him for insurance. But again, since it sounds like what he died of, I'm hemopelia sounds like it's probably some kind of blood thing. And it didn't come out that it was suspicious. So I'm guessing he died of something natural. So I don't know. I'm thinking it was probably natural causes, though everything around her seems to be a little shady. And actually, a lawyer that had worked with her called her, quote, a kind of a mastermind. And some people came forward and said that they, they saw her being cruel to O.C. Now, as they're doing all this research and divulging all this information, a woman in black showed up at a hotel saying she was Mrs. Maybrick. Someone found that suspicious and called the cops thinking it was Caroline. And indeed, it was. So they ended up finding clippings about that she had newspaper clippings of about O.C.'s case. She had receipts using several names and three suicide notes written in the same hand as the one found with O.C.'s body. So she was arrested. So in The Three Sisters in Black, I found this soliloquy she makes when she is located. And I think that it, it really shows how eloquent she was and why this case was so weird for people and how it was so easy for half the people to be like, well, these women are obviously educated and upright people. And it didn't seem so cut and dried. It's like, well, obviously she killed O.C. There's a lot of depth to it. And OK, so here just uh, here's what she said. So she's basically doing a press conference and they asked why she had been hiding because remember, they had been looking for her. She didn't even come to her own daughter's funeral. So they're like, what the hell's going on? Why have you been hiding? We are not yet so accustomed to our humiliations as to face them openly. But we are not crushed. There are animals whose first instinct when in pain is to run and hide their heads in some secluded spot. Others cry aloud so all can hear. It is the nature of my sisters and myself to be in silence 
alone with God. I kept out of sight because I feared arrest. I have some property in Louisville on which I can get $6,400 to pay for attorney's fees. I wanted to convert this little property into cash for my sister's defense. I knew that if I were held even as a witness, I would have little opportunity to do the writing necessary to dispose of my property or obtain a loan on it. Did anyone know where you were? Franklin Fort or your sisters, for example? Fort never knew. Neither did my sisters. They would never lie. I wrote Mary, but I never signed my name or told her my address. Why have you and your sisters behaved so mysteriously? Why all this mystery? When I had money and lived here, I visited and was visited by the Astors, Vanderbilts, and other leading families of the city. We could not bear for them to know that we were reduced to such poverty and facing such charges. None of us thought there would be more than some questions by the police, and so would say nothing. And there wouldn't have been but for the activity of the insurance companies. Why didn't you go to your daughter's funeral? There was no warrant out for your arrest in New York at the time. On the day that my daughter was buried, I was in a little room in a boarding house, alone, and so ill from bodily sickness and mental anguish that I could not leave my bed. I had nothing but the horrible printed accounts of my predicament to keep me company. I am a woman of sixty-four years old, who until now has always held her head high. I also had little money, and for three weeks until the time of my arrest, I had hardly eaten a single bite. How did O.C. Sneed die? I am going to tell the facts about my daughter, because it is time that the truth were known. My daughter O.C. came to her death by her own hand. I did not see her do it. I did not know that it was done until my sister was arrested, but I was not surprised. I had expected it for many months, ever since her husband Fletcher went away. During all those months of her life, the desire to commit suicide became her ruling passion. She read every story of suicide in the news. When she could get books pertaining to suicide and crime, she absorbed every word of them, and she calmly told us that she intended to die soon. I have caught her writing out plans of suicide many times. She has written to all members of the family, when we have been absent from New York, also to her cousins in the South, that when they read the letter she would be dead. I begged her over and over again not to write such things that would only cause much sorrow, but she held to her purpose. She told me many times that no matter how closely she was watched and guarded, she would manage to elude us. But why write so many suicide notes, all similar? It is a custom of educated and refined people to leave notes upon committing suicide. The illiterate and unrefined rarely do. It was perfectly natural then for her to make a note she left as perfectly as she could. It seems to me a most natural thing to do. If your daughter was going to commit suicide, why did she have a wash rag in her hand? The washcloth in my child's hand may be accounted for in at least two ways. She was one of the daintiest persons in the world. She would be spotlessly clean even in death, and perhaps took the bath before killing herself. Or, it's quite possible that her aunt had thrown the cloth into the tub, and it drifted into her half-open hand. The police said a hand was not clutched to it. Some people, I have been told Prosecutor Mott among them, believe that you are the author of the suicide notes. Do you believe that if I or my sisters were guilty of crime, we would keep such evidence so easy to de destroy? We may be old and foolish women, but we certainly are not so crazy as that would prove us to be. I can show you at least 25 suicide notes Osi wrote. She used to keep them under her pillow. Why did you, your sister not go upstairs to see about your daughter when she knew she had suicidal tendencies? Virginia knew less about the suicidal tendencies than I did. 
She did know that my daughter was extremely nervous. She had been asked to be left alone for 24 hours. Miss Wardlaw did not go upstairs because the steps were doubtless creaky, and she feared to wake so light a sleeper. Miss Wardlaw is one of the most honorable of women. If told not to disturb one until a certain time, she would almost as soon have her hand cut off as to do it. She would hardly enter the room to give an alarm of fire if possible to give it in any other way. Why did your sister go to visit Dr. Teeter so late at night to get a health certificate? As for Miss Wardlaw's going to see Dr. Teeter at 10 o'clock for a health certificate, doubtless my daughter was uneasy about herself, and her friends here and elsewhere were uneasy for her, and Miss Wardlaw wanted to assure the patient and her friends that she was suffering from nothing but a little cold, as the doctor said. She would also be cheered by the presence of the doctor. What about Fletcher Sneed? Fletcher left home last spring with Osi expecting her baby. She said right every day. Fletcher was supposed to testify against a Mr. Earthman of Nashville, with whom he had been associated in business. What a splendid man he was. He was so rich he couldn't count his money. The families were so friendly that my sister Virginia had a drawing account on Earthman's bank at one time of $10,000. Fletcher said he'd rather die than make the trip. He said if he didn't write every day, we would know something had happened to him. From that day, we heard no word. We made inquiry, but without money, we couldn't do much. Our crime, it appears, was that of being poor. You were not always poor. Can you tell us what happened? My father was a Methodist minister. He traveled a great deal and had an income of $14,000 a year. My daughter Osi, you will note I call her my daughter, for I have been asked if she were really my daughter, was born in New York and Murray Hill. My husband made $20,000 a year. Across the street from us lived Banker Colgate. Next door was Mrs. Winslow of soothing syrup fame and fortune. Osi was educated in the convent of the Sacred Heart and later in the school formerly conducted by Sylvanus Reed. She was educated to become the head of a young lady's seminary in the South that my sister had conducted so successfully. We did not wish her to do hard work. We intended she should live in the drawing room. Then came the financial panic, and the men of our family went crashing to the wall. Our dream of splendor was over. Our little girl's destiny was changed. At this point, Fletcher proposed. As childhood playmates of the grandmothers, he had asked them many times. First reply was, no, no, I don't want to marry anybody. I'm going to be a teacher. Finally, he won her love, and after their first child was born, her complete adoration. Why did about Fletcher's first wife? Why did he leave her? The reasons for the separation were that she was much older, and there was constant friction with her family. I do not wish to be harsh, but our family always believed that she and her sister looked upon those Sneed boys, as they were called, as a pretty good thing for two old maids to marry, and they were simply roped in. What about Fletcher's insurance? Much has been said of the mysterious Senator McLaurin, the beneficiary of his policies. The man is Rufus H. McLaurin, a former brother-in-law of Fletcher, who was chiefly instrumental in separating the couple. This man instigated a lawsuit against Fletcher and the wife sided with her family. The divorce showed, followed shortly after. Then Fletcher sold all of his policies outright to his wife's brother, McLaurin, for $900, making him the beneficiary. So you see, this insurance of Fletcher, which McLaurin pays for, would hardly be beneficial to us. Why was O.C. Sneed so emaciated when she died? Many harsh things have been said about the way we starved O.C. when living in the house in Flatlands. We starve her? We all loved her mother and we loved our lives. The poor child starved herself. That was one of the ways she intended to do away with herself, if no other fashion offered. The vast quantities of milk we bought were all for her. She had milk, chipped beef, crackers, and fresh eggs costing five cents each. She was told by the doctors to eat eggs raw and had been used for a long time to eat them that way. 
Night after night, we went out to buy some delicacy for her, pleaded to have her eat, only to have her put us away, shaking her beautiful head and crying out pitifully that she didn't want to live, but to please let her go to heaven, where she believed Fletcher was. We had many physicians, as is well known. They all say she had no chronic disorder. That is true. Her only trouble was heart sickness, and that at last brought on mental illness from which she could not discover. Why did she make out so many wills? I will now speak of the various wills of Osi that so much has been made of by the police. Her first will was made to cover some property in Kentucky in favor of her grandmother. This property was sold, thus nullifying the will. The second will was to cover some property in Virginia, which was also sold. The third will was made when it was feared she might die after the birth of a baby. She did not wish the family of Fletcher's first wife might get in any way benefit from her death. With Fletcher missing, a part of her estate would go to his son by his wife, unless she provided otherwise. It was necessary to draw the fourth and following wills on account of the actions of the lawyer Caraba. I believe that the changes he made in the will were never made at the dictation of Osi. He was never alone in the room with her. I did take five dollars from him, it is true, but only as a loan, and he got a receipt. In all of these wills, Osi's grandmother was made the beneficiary, together with the child. To each of the Cosadils, there was a carefully drawn memorandum of instructions to my mother regarding the bringing up of the child, and incorporated as part of the will. And now again about that life insurance that seems to have made such apparent monsters of all of us. We didn't want Osi's life insurance. We did all in our power to get the child to live and be our little girl. When our money dwindled and dwindled, we tried our best to get a cash surrender value on all her policies in order that there might not be further drain upon us. My mother finally took the matter up, and we received a letter from President Kingsley of the New York Life Insurance Company that the only thing to do to get rid of them was to let them lapse, as they had already been borrowed on to the limit. We took those policies out when we had plenty of money, and when we were, all of us, an easy mark for insurance agents. If you have to stand trial, what do you think will happen? Our case will be so simple that there can be nothing but our acquittal. But we want to be tried by a jury of our peers. We mean a jury of women, not by our lords and masters. All of the men who have dealt against us are like grown-up children. They know not what they do unless they are controlled by the evil genius that seems to have pursued us for years. Everything that we touch in the South seemed to be desired by someone else for financial exploitation, and it withered and died. We should not indulge in comparisons, but I'll simply refer to other women who have been vilified unjustly. Mary, Queen of Scots, and Madame Roland were made to suffer and then were canonized. Joan of Arc was killed and then became a saint, and so with us. They can crucify us now while we live, but there will be a day of reckoning by and by. I would welcome death. I am old and infirm and would like to die. I would like to go to heaven where the innocent are. I am absolutely innocent of any crime." So yeah, she has an answer for everything. It's uh it's pretty intimidating when you're when you're going through it. You're kind of like, "Okay, well, case closed. She has answers to everything. It was a suicide and everything's the way that she said." She also had some interesting things to say about money. There's no evidence to show that I was implicated in my daughter's death, and if I had the money, these men would never dare hold me on a charge of murder. I can prove that every bit of evidence brought against my two sisters has been presented by the big interests who want to cheat us out of our money. The only use the world has for a widow who is old, old, is to see how much money she has and then to get it. Money. Think of the terrible potency of it. You can't do anything without money. You can't be born without money. You can't be married without money. You can't move your hand to your face without money. You can't even die without money. I considered that money alone would gain my sister's liberty, and I tried to get it before my arrest. 
Those men who own the insurance companies, millionaires and multimillionaires, are anxious to prevent three old women from coming into the money they deserve. Prosecutor Mott sits on one side of the table, and the insurance company detectives on the others, and they pass under the table to them these alleged scandalous findings that they have unearthed about our family. Then they are passed out to the newspapers by the prosecutor, and my sisters and I are held to public ridicule as three Siamese twins. It's like the vivisectionists. They cut up and kill poor, helpless animals just to ascertain how they can help human beings to live. The insurance companies are pra practicing vivisection on me and my sisters, deceiving themselves into believing that in order that they may live, three old women must die. Now, the interesting thing is that some of the things she said actually weren't untrue. The insurance company did and refused to pay the money on OC, and the prosecution did release statements to the press, and they actually were not represented by counsel at this point. However, before you get all wrapped up in thinking how everything is obviously the way that she said it, they found Fletcher alive in Canada. So you know how they, they had told OC that he was dead? He wasn't. So he ran away because he didn't want to testify. And one of the aunts had actually visited him and knew that he was alive. So they knew he was alive and they never told OC. They found they found evidence implicating Mary Sneed, so she got arrested. She was 61 years old. They found even more suicide notes in the same handwriting for each time of the year for different that were to different family members. There are several people that came forward and said that the sisters tried to pay them off. So, for example, that doctor that had come and done surgery after the second pregnancy and that was trying to get her help, they basically said, you know, hey, we'll give you $1,000 if you'll sign this will. And there was another guy that they were trying to get a loan from and they basically handed him, like, I think, like $12,000 in cash or something. They handed him a wad of cash. And he's like, what's this? And like, oh, that's just a little something you can have once you approve this loan. And he ran the fuck out of there. It was obvious that they were trying to, they had a thing about trying to bribe people. And they, they would do whatever they could to get money from people. There's also that shady business about asking the, doc the doctor to come late at night to check on her health. The prosecution was like, well, they couldn't have done that in the middle of the day. Like, why did they have to do it that night? If it was just truly to, for the woman's peace of mind, to prove that she wasn't dying right then, I mean, really, you couldn't have done it earlier in the day. It just seems, you know, that, that still seems, even though she can try to explain it away, that still seems weird. They also pointed out that since, at this point, O.C., was 80 pounds. She was gaunt and weak, so she was too weak to walk on her own. So it would have been difficult to her to walk on her own to the tub, and then plus there was only 12 inches of water in the tub. So it would be difficult to drown yourself in 12 inches of water. And they also checked and they couldn't find any other suicide by drowning. So again, that led to the, she was probably poisoned or had some kind of opiate in her system and that somebody probably held her down and drowned her. Plus, you know, if they knew she was suicidal, why were they letting her stay home alone? The thing is, if you knew your daughter was suicidal, wouldn't you tell your sister that she's living with? I mean, that seems kind of weird that she's like, oh, Virginia didn't know about how suicidal she was, but she's living with her. I mean, <laughs> that seems pretty unlikely. And then also, again, why didn't they tell her about Fletcher? So basically, this woman is starving herself. Supposedly, she's starving herself because her baby died, her husband's dead, but they know that her husband's alive, so why would they torture her by not telling her that? So basically, the prosecution was saying even if they did not kill her, that they drove her into self-murder. All three of them were charged with murder, 
aiding, counseling, and abetting O.C. in self-murder. They pled not guilty. While they were awaiting trial, their great-aunt Oceana died, their mom Martha died, and O.C.'s second kid, David Pollock, died. Virginia, meantime, was starving herself, and she wound up dying in prison before trial in August 1910. It was revealed that Caroline was mentally, was probably mentally unstable, and that her weird, the weird behavior from the family was to cover this mental illness, because, you know, since they had been a wealthy family, they didn't want, well, plus, you know, it's, I guess, embarrassing if you think a family member has mental illness. So they were basically saying that everybody was trying to cover, that Virginia, by staying with O.C. and keeping it from Caroline, was trying to protect her. Oh, and also, O.C.'s a dope fiend. She's addicted to morphine. So those are a lot of, hey, by the way, these are things, too. Caroline wound up having a trial to see if she's sane enough for trial. And there were some, several witnesses that had ways to prove that she, you know, they, they had examples of her odd behavior. Like, she just hoarded some, like, newspapers and, and then she wouldn't bathe and she wouldn't comb her hair. And sometimes she would forget to put on underwear. She'd wear one sock. And there were a bunch of other things. Of course, they have answers for, like, all of this. Like, she said that she kept all that stuff to write a book. That that's why she had all those newspapers, was she was going to write a book. She just hadn't written a book. There was a doctor able to convince everyone, like, yeah, she's has odd behaviors, but she still knows what's going on. Like, she's still lucid, so she's still sane enough for trial. Basically, she was able to put on trial, and she got seven years. During that time, she became hysterical and got stent- sent to the state hospital for the insane. She died Saturday, June 21st. 1913 of a degenerative heart failure since caroline had she had pled guilty of manslaughter and you can't have an accomplice in manslaughter so mary sneed was acquitted and she was released i will say that this whole time they're saying that oc was starved it's very interesting that virginia wound up starving herself to death so that's uh that's an interesting ironic i don't know there's something very uh poetic about that it is hard to know the absolute truth. As I read through, there's a lot more into their shenanigans with fraud and running around. I, I'm going to be doing an episode on serial killers that committed fraud and then going more into their fraud. So we'll definitely delve into A.J. Holmes and more into this to go through some of the, sh- the ways that they were so mischievous and roundabout with their fraudulent behavior. It really seems to me that when you look at both sides, it seems like they were definitely... They were, they were definitely doing shady things. As far as OC, I, it's hard to tell if... Because there was also a thing where they claimed... She, some people claimed that it seemed like she was under hypnosis. And there was indeed an article found amidst Caroline's stuff that said that it was about hypnotism. I don't know about all that. But it if it is true that she was controlling of John and Fletcher, then I could see her being controlling of OC. And so... Maybe maybe that drove O.C. to starving herself. It's it's interesting that they're poor and the women are, I guess they're pretty slender. But the one woman was said that she was pretty kind of bigger. So they're obviously eating. Now, they're, when, when they're at school, when the, they're teachers and stuff, they're able to eat. But it's, it's commonly mentioned that there's really not any food in the house anytime someone would visit. Or that there's like just bits of food, remnants of food around the house. So if they're so poor and, but only 
O.C. looked like she was starving, then it, I don't know, it, it does seem like maybe, maybe they're making O.C. a prisoner. I'm kind of conflicted on it. But they're definitely, again, by not telling her about Fletcher and by, and if they know she's suicidal and they're leaving her alone and stuff, there's definitely something fucked up going there, going on there. I have a tendency to think they probably did. They were complicit in her murder in some capacity. And, I don't know, and the whole thing about drowning in 12 inches of water, the only thought that I have is she, her head was under the faucet, so, I mean, I thought, well, maybe she has a water constantly running in her mouth, she wouldn't be able to breathe through that. But then again, the second autopsy said that there wasn't enough water in her stomach, and they thought that it was probably, she was probably poisoned, and then she just, like, passed out, and that's why she was able to drown, and if, and if someone was holding her down, you know. But then again, they didn't really say that they found anything in her system, so that's another thing that I'm kind of puzzled about, that they didn't come out com conclusively that they found anything. So I don't know, maybe they didn't have the tools to find certain drugs. I know that they had, in that time period, they were able to find, like, arsenic and stuff like that, so... I don't know. It's all kind of suspicious. We know that they were conv convicted of killing, at least Caroline was convicted of killing O.C. or being complicit in her murder. Now, the other one would be if they killed John, the guy who supposedly accidentally fell from a train, then accidentally fell in a cistern, and then accidentally caught himself on fire. That could be another one, because I could see that going either way, that maybe he was committing suicide, or maybe they were killing him because they did have insurance on him. The baby died? So the one baby died, I don't know. I'm wondering, they didn't have insurance policy on the baby, so I don't know what incentive they'd have other than it's just another mouth to feed, and they're already poor and hungry. And then they, the other baby was ill, and they sent him off to, to a hospital, and he died, so I don't think they had anything to do with that. Like I said, the one husband died of heart failure, so unless she did something to cause that, I really don't know. There wasn't anything else that really pointed towards other people that they killed. Again, like I said, the one Caroline's son supposedly died by meningitis, but maybe he had been pushed on the stairs. I don't know. So to me, it doesn't really look like they killed many people. It seems like they were just frauding people all over the place. I don't know. Whether they're serial killers or not, I still think it's a very interesting thing. And I'm kind of disappointed that there's not a movie about it. I think this would make a kick-ass movie. So someone make a really good movie about this. And I, I actually just found right before the podcast, I found another book about them so I'm intrigued to read that and see if anything else is illuminated and I'll let you know if I learn anything else that is the sisters portion of the episode so we had Delfina and Maria Carmen and Mary Luisa de Jesus Gonzalez that killed a whole shit ton of people at least for 80 to 110 or more people and theirs were was obviously a financial thing they killed people for money and then plus like i said they had killed girls if they were no longer useful so it was a convenience and then it was also greed now it sounds like they just enjoyed abuse in general there was definitely a fair amount of they will do whatever they need to do to keep you in line so that way they can get what they need to get but again i think that's a lot of that's greed and I mean I don't know maybe if maybe it wasn't necessarily the sisters that did some of that so again they had muscle they had the lover and the son that would keep them in line so maybe they were the ones that did it and the sisters just looked the other way and um, oh and then and then there was that the the executioner supposedly that would had different creative ways to kill them so and they actually did pay off local cops so with them we see apparently they were really good at bribing people and they were really good at having a successful several successful businesses and I'm not saying that the way that they were successful was right <laughs> or good I'm just saying that 
they got away with it for like probably 14 years or so. They were effective at what they were trying to do, at least until either um, their recruiter was caught or their one of their sex workers escaped. Comparing to the Wardlaw sisters, there were actually four sisters again, although Bessie was not involved with any of this. So we've got the three main sisters, and theirs was obviously, everything they did was obviously for money. It doesn't seem like any of the killings would have been, or any of the activity would have been from a need to hurt or anything like that. I mean, apparently Caroline supposedly could be cruel, so apparently she did some weird shit when she was in charge of schools, but it doesn't seem like anything near what the Gonzalez sisters were doing. Another thing that I noticed is when I was reading through Igor's research, it seemed like Virginia was the forefront of everything, and that it seemed like Virginia was the main person, but then reading through Sisters in Black, or the... the three sisters, it seemed like Caroline was the one in charge. So it's interesting to see from different sources, the different dynamics. But it's also interesting to see they were they were all very involved. Although it does seem like Mary is more in the background and Carolyn and Virginia were the, the ones who were most active. And Mary was kind of, seems like she was just along for the ride. I mean, she was acquitted, so apparently she wasn't really doing doing much actively, at least not as much as specifically in O.C.'s case. I do think it's interesting, too, that they all wore veils. And like I said, some of them had similar structures. So sometimes people weren't sure which one they were talking to. And they made a point in the book to say, so when they were talking to the judges and getting everything figured out, they actually swapped veils. So you can see this, like, tricksy behavior where this chaotic nature where they probably enjoyed confusing people and that probably helped with their fraud is because then what happened is anybody that came forward and said oh i spot talking to virginia they're like are you sure it was virginia and then they're like oh well i guess it could have been caroline you know so there was a lot of this weird like they don't know who's who so that made it hard to pinpoint anything so i think that there's a lot of thought behind that and the fact that they they all dress that way and they acted that way in some ways it seems counter intuitive to what they're doing because you fucking stick out and that's part of the thing is a lot of people notice them because they're walking around in fucking veils and black capes so they're not exactly discreet so people remember them and if you're committing fraud and you're trying to get one over on people most of the time you don't want to be noticed it's easier if you fit in or if you have a certain look that puts people at ease so it's interesting that they actually stood out but I do think it's also there's a tactic of you're intimidated by them. You can't see their face, so they're you're off balance, so they're able to control you easier if they have you off balance. And they pointed out in the book that when they're at college and they're teaching, instead of people thinking it, of it as off-putting and, and odd, they saw it as they actually kind of respected that it was eccentric, and they just kind of took it as like a, a quirk of theirs that was interesting because it, they were obviously some kind of genius. So we'll... we'll We'll take that and instead of being turned off by it, we'll respect it. But then when people saw them and they were owing them money and they're acting crazy, then that stuff becomes weird. Like it's kind of like at the um, in Step Brothers when they go to an interview together and they're both wearing like tuxedos and the guy's like, you know, okay, that's cool. Showing up, it's ironic. You know, you're wearing the tuxedos and then he passes long gas and then he's like, okay. Yeah, now the the tuxedos are seeming weird. Now this is a weird thing, and now I don't want you here anymore. So it's kind of like that. It's it's all about context and the spin you put on it. 
So in some contexts, it was cool or, you know, interesting that they wore these things and maybe helpful. And in another respect, it's creepy as fuck. And then you're all thrown off. So in either way, they can kind of use it to their advantage. But I guess it's like anything. It's a double edged sword. I still am inclined to think that I don't know, like, why point yourself out that much? It's interesting that they're not great with the the fraud stuff and that they try really hard. You know, they keep trying. And and I think it's they try to run schools and then they drive them to the ground. But then in Caroline's speech, she blames it on the men that anytime they did anything, it was the men that ruined everything. So I find that kind of interesting because because from what I saw, it was Carolyn that was acting crazy and you know they didn't mention men but of course it could be that they just didn't mention the men there were men there so I don't know maybe men were putting them down and this is the 1800s so to have strong women I can see why that would also be off-putting to people you know women who actually had their own because like Virginia was apparently very good at running the college it's just Caroline wasn't able to handle it that well so Virginia was actually good at it and maybe to some people that was threatening and that's another reason why people went against them is because they were intelligent women that were able to handle themselves so it's too bad though that they weren't they were having trouble surviving on their own in this culture and you know plus it would be difficult when you have had money and then now you have no money and I can understand the embarrassment to go from having money and no money and the pride of not wanting people to know and how ashamed they probably were. I get that. It's too bad that they were smart enough to handle some frauds but not others. Not like I think fraud's okay, but for them, if that's what they were going for, it's too bad they weren't better at it, you know, and they were always scrambling for money. Now is the brother's portion. And now I will tell you about Gary and Thaddeus Lewingdon. Side note, my first husband's name was Thaddeus. Just a little tidbit for you. They had 10 murders from December 1977 to December 1978. Gary was born in February 1940. He was in the Air Force, serving in Vietnam for four years, where then he resigned in 1962, and he went to live with his mom. He lived with her until 1977, and he got married and earned a living in low-skilled labor. He had run-ins with the cops for petty theft, obscene behavior, and illegal possession of weapons. Thad was born either in September or December of 1936. He is a graduate of Cleveland Institute of Electronics, working in Columbus at the Columbus Steel Drum Company to support his wife and three kids. He got a divorce from his wife in 1977, which is interesting because that's when his brother had met his wife. He was said to be in a serious psycho-emotional state and financial distress, causing him to be susceptible to Gary convincing him to engage in a bunch of robberies. Apparently, the brothers would select strangers and towns away from where they were known, and they would invade, home, invade homes and workplaces in the Columbus, Ohio area. On December 10th, 1977, they killed Joyce Vermillion, 37 years old, and Karen Dodrill, 33 years old, outside of Forker's Cafe in Newark, Ohio. It was around 3 a.m., and their frozen bodies were found outside the rear door of the establishment. There were 22 caliber shell casings found in the snow near the frozen bodies. So in one source, it says... 
February 12th, 1978, and another one, it says October 13th, 1978, then another source says February 13th. So two, two sources say February, so we'll say February, I guess. Robert Mickey McCann, 52 years old, his mom Dorothy Marie McCann, 77 years old, and his girlfriend Christine Herdman, 26-year-old, were killed in their home. Each had multiple shots around the face and head. 22 caliber shell casings were also found at that crime scene. At this point, a woman comes forward named Claudia Yasko. She's a 26-year-old go-go dancer. I'm not quite sure if that's actually still something that is said, but that's what this source said. She went to the cops and said that she did it, that she was there with two guys that did it. And her description of the house and everything got her arrested along with her boyfriend and his friend. Now, while they're in custody, four more murders were shot, were committed with the same 22 caliber gun that was in the other murders. April 18th, Jenkin T. Jones, 77 years old, was shot at home in Granville, Ohio. He was shot mostly in the head, some in the body. They also killed his four dogs. Now, that's just fucked up. And then they stole, stole his money and valuables. There were 22 caliber casings left at this scene. On April 30th, Reverend Gerald Fields was killed while working as a security guard. He had a part-time job as a security guard in Fairfield County. It was the same weapon. At this point, the charges were dropped on Claudia because obviously there were murders being committed while they were in prison or while they were in custody. So it was finally revealed that the reason that Claudia had confessed is because she had heard her boyfriend and Gary talking about the McCann murder and on the night of the shootings, her boyfriend persuaded her to go with one of his associates to the scene of the murder to search for drugs. She was schizophrenic and undergoing treatment, so her recollection of the murder scene had convinced her that she had been involved. May 21st, Jerry and Martha Martin, both in their 50s, they were killed at their home in Franklin County. Again, they were shot multiple times in the head. Again, 22 caliber casings were found at the scene. Apparently, in fall of 1978, the brothers had a fight, which caused Thaddeus to take his 22 caliber pistol and go home, refusing to take part in future thefts. Gary was worried about providing for Christmas, so he wound up killing Joseph Ennick. Some things say it's E-N-N-I-K and others said A-N-N-I-K. One source said he was killed in the street and robbed, but another one says he was killed in his garage and robbed. They both agree that he was killed, and it was with a different 22 caliber gun. Gary tried to use Annick's credit cards, but he was arrested for credit card fraud. And when they caught him, they found some other, they found some other things from victims. He confessed and implicated his brother. Mrs. Lewingdon had told cops she thought her brother-in-law, Gary's brother, had done it. Gary said his brother was involved and that he was the dominant one. Thaddeus was arrested and confessed, but he said his brother initiated it all and that Gary was trigger-happy. They were later charged with 10 counts of murder and aggravated theft. January 1979, the brothers decided to recant their confessions and insisted they were innocent. The police then proceeded to find the murder weapons in their apartments along with the victim items that they had taken as trophies. Thaddeus confessed to killing Vermilion, Dodrill, Jones, as well as other thefts, and he was sent to life in prison. He was taken to Franklin County Court and charged with complicity in six other murders and was found guilty in April and given an additional six life sentences. He died of lung cancer April 1989. 
Gary had one trial and got eight life sentences for uh, he was guilty of eight murders and got eight life sentences. He became psychotic and was transferred to the hospital for criminally insane. And then he was then he was returned to the correctional facility in Lucasville after an escape attempt. He died of heart failure on October 24th, 2004. Since they had used 22 caliber caliber pistols, they were dubbed the 22 caliber killers. And it is said that neither talked much about their crimes after their convictions or what motivated them. That was pretty much all we could find on them. I found that there had been a book written about them, but it was unavailable. So I have not been able to find it and read it. If you wind up finding a copy, let me know. Now on to brothers Kevin and Reginald Haley. Kevin Bernard Haley was a serial rapist and robber active from 1983 to 1984. He shared drugs and women with his brother Reginald while completing some 500 burglaries and 60 rapes and eight murders over five years. Reginald was 27 when he was arraigned on 42 felony counts involving 24 victims for crimes committed from August 83 to August 84. Kevin was born in 1964. Reginald was born in 1960. They were in L.A. Kevin was a former dog groomer. They were into drugs, women, burglaries, rape, murder. Said to be addicted to cocaine. On April 30th, 1983, a 90-year-old Isabel Burton was beaten to death, looted, and had her home ransacked. To celebrate the year anniversary of killing Isabel, they beat, raped, and murdered Dee Rubinoff, who was 78 years old, in her Los Angeles apartment. In May... They tried to take Willa Gerber, but she escaped. However, they then completed a murder of 15-year-old Jody Samuels, who was running to catch her school bus. She was shot to death. In June, Laverne Stoltze, 56 years old, was raped and murdered in her home. Then in the months between June to September, they beat to death 79-year-old Elizabeth Burns. 89-year-old Elizabeth Karp was strangled to death. They beat to death 88-year-old T. Akauchi in her home. And in September, they raped and murdered 55-year-old Dolores Clement in her home. In October, they were arrested, and they gave details of unreported rapes. They also drew a diagram of the crime scene, and fingerprints were found at the scene. They were charged with murder, kidnapping, rape, and sodomy. Reginald was charged with four counts of robbery, two burglaries, two counts of rape, and of sodomy and oral copulation with sexual assaults and one kidnapping slash auto theft. They got 60 years plus one life term, eligible parole for parole in 20, 30 years. Kevin went on trial for 13 burglaries, one robbery, one attempted rape, rape and one account of sodomy. A mistrial was declared for his charge of Laverne Stoltz's murder, and he faced another trial for his murder of Jody. Kevin is in San Quentin, and Reginald is in a... California Healthcare Facility in Stockton. That was all the information we found about them. So what's what's interesting slash disturbing about them is the fact that they were raping and beating to death elderly women. The first one was 98, the next one was 78. Then they tried to take a woman and it doesn't say her age. I would assume it's probably an older woman, but then they got then they killed a 15-year-old. I'm wondering if it was just they were, they had the failed attempt of trying to take someone. So they saw this girl and saw that she was available. And so they shot her. 
But it seems like with everyone else, they beat them or strangle them. So to shoot her, it's really the deviation from everything. So that's very interesting. And I wish that I had more information on why that might have been. Because that's, uh, that's a random one. I don't know. So, and then the rest of the victims were like 79, 89, 88. One was 55. And then they were caught. Part of it might be, it makes sense that they might choose older women because they might be easier to overtake. Now, as far as the raping, that's uh, another level. It seems like they just say the first victim was beaten. The 78-year-old was raped. The 56-year-old was raped. So it looks like the rest of them were just beaten and not raped. So that's, uh, well, there's a 55-year-old that was raped. So apparently they raped three and beat the rest to death. It's interesting that it wasn't like their M.O. wasn't always to rape and murder. It was sometimes just to murder. So I guess it just depended on their whim. Maybe there are sometimes they felt more more, hur- more hurried than others. I don't know. So as far as the comparisons with the brothers, we have Gary and Thaddeus Lewingdon, where they would shoot, they would, so basically all of them, both sets of brothers were into robbery and home invasions. So that's kind of interesting. Oh, you know, what's interesting is in both cases, both brothers are four years apart because Thad was born in 1936 and Gary was born in 1940. And then Reginald was born in 1960 and Kevin was born in 1964. So that's also interesting that there's a four-year age difference and they both got into home invasions and burglary and murder. The crimes are also, so it looks like the crimes started for the Lewingdons in 1977, where they killed two women. And for the Haley's, their first one was 1983. So it's really not that far apart. Now, it looks like the Lewingdons didn't rape anyone. They primarily were just shooting people during robberies. So that seems like it was specifically just shooting either to eliminate witnesses or maybe they just enjoyed doing it whereas obviously the sometimes the rape was part of the process whereas other times they just enjoyed murdering for the Haley's those are the primary things that I noticed between the two brother groups and it's also interesting that like where with the sisters there were four sisters in each case though in the Wardlaw sisters like I said one of the sisters wasn't really involved and then in the brothers cases there's two brothers in both case. So it's kind of interesting to see those parallels. It's always interesting to see when family members choose to go in together on this kind of activity. I think it's especially interesting the more siblings you have, because it seems to me that there are sometimes there's at least one sibling that's a little different than the other siblings. So if you have four siblings and all four of you wind up being in the business together, that's that's particularly interesting. But if you have one or two that kind of do the conventional thing and, you know, don't kill, that seems a little less surprising. It also makes sense that if you are related, and especially if you are closer in age, I could see how that would bond you together and you would maybe maybe be more inclined to push each other. And there's might be some sense of competition that you can, you know, that kind of the force that would feed into that. So you could compete, but you could also bond over it. So I could see why for the guys, especially that that would be something that would be appealing to them and why it would, they would have a common taste for that, I guess. Now for the sisters, 
it seemed it seems like a similar thing where they all had that same drive of they wanted to be self-sufficient and they obviously didn't have a compunction to hurt people to get there and so they ha- you know since they came from similar circumstances they apparently had similar enough personalities that they were okay with doing that and that they had similar temp- temperaments where they could do that whereas i know siblings as you probably do too where they're completely have different approaches to life and so there'd be no way that they would get along enough to go in into that kind of business together well that has been the episode on killer brothers and sisters up next we'll have a little break from the families that kill together and i will be discussing different kinds of serial killer books you would think that maybe there's just serial killer books i don't know like maybe it's given there's going to be a couple different types but there are several different types and i will go in depth with books that are shit and books that are great and books that you know are okay and it's not just going to be i'm going down and saying this is good this is good this is bad i'll give examples of the different types of books there's actually quite a few different types of serial killer books out there so i will give you an idea of the types of things that are out there i will give some suggestions on good things to read i go over some some authors i keep running into so you'll know some common names and if you're interested in reading some I can give you some names of people to look into. So it'll be, uh, it's a fun little romp, as I like to say. And then we'll be back again with more Families That Kill Together. We will be covering the benders and the beans, and then later. And then we'll also be covering some more brothers that murdered together, like the Reigns brothers and the Chicago Rippers, which were some brothers and then some other people. We have that to look forward to. I will also be having a special episode for Thanksgiving about crimes that happened around Thanksgiving. That's something to be thankful for. I would like to take this time to thank Igor, my socially distant assistant. And we have an exciting announcement. We have been working together. And we will be having some Murder Lab merch coming. That's right. Murder Lab merch. So it looks like we'll be having, you know, some stickers We'll have some car magnets and some fridge magnets. So we have some stuff in the works. Eventually we will have face masks and t-shirts. Keep tuned in for that, how to get that. We are excited, obviously. Make sure to check out the Murder Lab Facebook page and Instagram. I will continue to give movie recommendations. Sometimes I'll post book recommendations. I have other episodes coming up. I'm looking into doing an episode because I just I'm watching the series Ratchet about Nurse Ratchet from One Flew Over the Cuckoo's Nest. And it's by the dude who did uh, American Horror Story. So I'm looking into doing a an episode on that show and if the historical accuracy of some of the procedure, procedures done in the show and just kind of talking about it in general. Who knows? I may even have a guest or two. We don't know. It's going to get crazy, Lab Rats. Crazy. So make sure you check everything out. Keep an eye on the pages and also go to murderlabmedia.com and check that out to see episode information and references and all that good stuff. Now, I will make a note, since most of the research was from websites, I will post on my reference page a list of all those websites we got information from. As always, you can find us on Google Play and iTunes. You can find the RSS feed at the website, so you can plug that into your favorite podcast app to listen. Make sure to like and subscribe and all that good groovy stuff so you can keep tuned in to what's cooking in the lab. Thank you for entering the lab.